lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for being with us today. We've got a really, we're all going to learn a little about something that's touched all of us, and that's trauma. I've got Dr. Marie Brown Mercedale, and she's a Gallup Certified Strengths-Based Leadership Coach. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Mercedale Consulting Solutions and has over 10 years of experience providing executive coaching, motivational speaking, and leadership development services. She's also received certifications in diversity, equity, and inclusion from the University of Central Florida, Lean Six Sigma from the University of San Diego, and is a credentialed California County Senior Leadership Executive through the California State Association of Counties. She's done a lot of training and keynote speeches for large audience with a focus on trauma-informed healing, employee engagement, disruptive innovation strategies, and racial equity. She received her undergrad in psychology from North Carolina Central and a master's and a doctorate in organizational leadership from the University of Phoenix. Dr. Mercedale is a proud member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority. She served as the chair of the Economic Development Committee with the goal of providing educational programs related to financial literacy. She also served on the Social Action Committee and co-facilitated seminars related to managing the social and emotional aspects of COVID-19 in urban communities, voting and advocacy, and diversity and inclusion issues. And you know, the the COVID-19, the emotional aspect of that still lingers. I like to think it's gone, but the emotional aspect still lingers. She is a dynamic speaker. She's just recently conducted a TEDx talk and completed her memoir titled Getting to My Enough, a story of faith, resilience, and survival. In this memoir, she describes her remarkable journey of persevering through unspeakable childhood sexual trauma, the loss of a baby as a teenager, and her tenacious resolve to get to her enough. Her frank and detailed descriptions of her life experiences are riveting and provide proof that healing out loud after living through trauma is possible. Marie, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this opportunity to be here today. Well, you know, trauma is something at the Brain Performance Center. I'm amazed at how many people, I think trauma is part of life. I really do. Some of it is, is more severe. Some of it is is it comes from such different sources. I just did a consultation with a young man that his bird had died and it brought him to tears. That doesn't, Mm. you know, so trauma comes in so many different ways and we all have to learn to to deal with. And it sounds like that you had a lot to learn from. Oh, absolutely. Trauma looks different for everyone, as well as recovery looks different to everyone. Because as you know, everyone's makeup is completely different. So one person's response cannot be the roadmap for another person's response because we're individuals. 
Well, and I think, you know, one of the things I have found is people have to be ready to heal. That's it's, it's their timeline. You know, you can't put them on your timeline. Yeah, absolutely. That, that healing is, is, is personal. And as a trauma survivor, you know, one of the things that I know is that you have to be ready to heal. You have to be able to acknowledge what happened to you, accept that what happened to you was not your fault. And then I think there's some accountability that we have to have to ourselves. Um, for healing and be, being able to, to move forward and, and, and live our best lives. Um, when something traumatic happens to you, regardless of if it's physical or mental or, or psychological or environmental, it's, it's a part of you. It becomes part of your, your, your psyche. Um, you know, physiologically, we absorb that. And so, you know, you, you don't forget about it. It actually shapes the way you feel, what you think how you how you behave, what you believe. But I think that if we are willing as individuals who have dealt with trauma to do the work and have some self accountability, that that we can heal because that's what we deserve to do is to be able to heal. Absolutely. And you know, what I have found is trauma lives in the subconscious. You know, Mm -hmm. it'll work its way up to the conscious and we'll slap it right back down. Oh, I don't want to think about that right now, but it never goes away. It's always there. And that's one of the things that the Brain Performance Center with creating neuroplasticity and using neurofeedback, you can help the brain to let go of it. And it's a, it almost is a choice to let mm-hmm. go of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, someone has to be ready, right? So, you know, I hear people say sometimes, oh, that happened to you 10 years ago. It happened to you 15 years ago. But it's really not about a, a, a time or a date. You know, it's really about that person's emotional health and where they are. And you talk about neuroplasticity, right? And that's the brain's ability to, to change um, and to make, you know, new, to, to create new, new memories, right? To create new ways of acting and thinking and feeling. But it's really a process. Because when things happen to us, it becomes part of our cognitive behavior, cognitive memory. And so, you know, healing is is an evolving, continuous process. And I don't know that you ever get to a place of being completely healed because there are certain triggers that we're always going to be faced with. But if you are, um, if you are using the right you know, either therapeutic interventions or natural interventions, be it mindfulness or yoga or whatever meditation practices, then you're able to deal um, better with those triggers that are going to be a continual part of our lives. Well, you know, it's it's the way the brain processes information is it writes the stories. And the brain doesn't care if it's got some missing data. Oh, I'll just pull this in and... And we tend to write the stories we have to fake. We write stories and we don't know how accurate they are. And I think that that's the hard part of, of going through your trauma or what I have found working through. And we've all had trauma. I mean, my dad died when I was 12 and mm-hmm. he had lost a lung in World War II. That was it wasn't something that was totally unexpected. Didn't make it any easier to accept Mm-hmm. Right. As a matter of fact, when we talk about 
trauma, I think about adverse childhood experiences, which was the study that was done back in the 90s with Kaiser Permanente and the Center for Disease Control. And so trauma does not have to be outright physical abuse or sexual abuse. It could be parental separation or divorce or the loss of a parent between the ages of 0 and 17 years old. It could be feeling like no one loves you or feeling like your family wasn't close to each other. Um, it, feel, it could feel like you didn't have enough food to eat when you were growing up. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an event that people would normally think about, you know, someone being physically abused or sexually abused or verbally abused or domestic violence. It could be other things that also cause trauma because, as you mentioned earlier, the young man lost his pet. And that's a traumatic experience because it's still lost. It's, it's, it's lost in, in, the, in the perspective of not a, a, a family member or a child or a parent, but it's still lost, a loss of that individual. And if that loss is not treated like an important event in that person's life and they don't, you know, get the support that they need during that time, then the lingering effects could manifest in other ways, you know, as, as they grow into adulthood. Well, and you know that when he lost that bird, he was four, he's 14 years old. His brain's not fully developed. It won't right. be fully developed for another decade. So how right. that brain processes that information is, is very inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And it, it's amazing to me that people will say, you know, oh, you, as you said, people say, well, that was 10 years ago. And because one of the ways that that at the Brain Performance Center, we'll do a brain map. And when eyes closed is very, very different from eyes open, what I have seen is there's been a traumatic event. Now, do I have a research study to cite that? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. But I have plenty of colleagues that have seen the same thing and right. never have I asked the question. So, you know, this is typically represents some trauma. Is there any trauma in your, your life? Never have I been told, absolutely not. Right. Right. Because everyone is experienced. Everyone is going to experience some type of adverse incident throughout their lifetime. Um, and again, people accept things differently in different ways. So there's, there's never one pattern or path for everyone. Well, and I think that, you know, I'm very interested in your book because, number one, I appreciate how appreciate how hard it is to write a book. When I wrote Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. But to, to have to really work through, to continue to work through some of that trauma, again, when you wrote the book, it had to touch you in a, in a different way. Well, I'll tell you, you know, the good thing when you're writing your own book without the, any other pressures only other than your own internal pressures is, you know, when I was writing, I felt some, some re-triggering, right? Um, especially some of the things during my early childhood. And so what I told myself was that when that happened, that I was going to allow myself to step away from the book and allow myself to do something that was going to help me, you know, reset my frame of mind. And, you know, I'm really into mindfulness and, and meditation 
and exercise and all of those things. And so that's what I used when I was writing the book. And sometimes I stepped away for weeks at a time because I really needed to, because sometimes those things are so far buried into your psyche and then writing about them, it feels like it just happened to you yesterday. Um, And it becomes very real all over again. And so at the same time, though, it was cathartic because I was strong enough to write about it. And I envisioned that by writing about my story, that it was going to help other people to also be able to come to terms with some of the things that they had dealt with, either in childhood or adulthood, that they really never have brought to the surface and um, and sought any types of interventions to help them you know, to work through their depression or their anxiety. So, you know, on one hand, yes, it was triggering. On the other hand, to be able to get through it was something that was more valuable to me than any therapeutic treatment that I had received in the past, quite honestly. Well, and and I appreciate that you said, you know, sometimes I walked away from it for weeks at a time. That Mm -hmm. strength, that it takes more strength to face it and and to know yourself well enough to know what you need then because I've I've had several clients ah you know power through suck it up buttercup I'm going to do this I'm going to do this and I'm like you don't have to do it today right you know it doesn't have to be today and I've even had the the comment well if not now when Mm -hmm. and my response to that was when you're ready right so, you know, especially women, um, we we try to do everything right. We try to be super women. You know, we're the moms and we're the wives and we're the super, you know, leaders and we're the community members and we're the grandparents and we're the aunts and we're the sisters and we're the friends. And we, we're frame, framing in our minds that we can do everything. But the reality of it is, I think that's really what's causing us a lot of psychological stress. Well, and we're, and, and we know, it's, we all know that, but does that mean we can control it? You know, I absolutely think that we, we can control it if we acknowledge it. Because if we don't take care of ourselves first, if we don't practice self-care, and sometimes that self-care means saying, no, I cannot do this. Sometimes that self-care means I don't have to do all this today. I can do some of these things tomorrow or I don't have to do it at all. And so as a recovering overachiever, you know, I sit here and say, yes, we can control it once we recognize it. Um, But sometimes we don't recognize it because we're in overdrive because it's what we're used to doing. It's like this rote behavior um, that we have had this methodized way of doing the things that we do every single day. And we, the more we do try to do, the more we take on. And so, yes, I think that we have to take responsibility for controlling it and being able to say, I'm going to rip this F off my chest today. And I don't have to be superwoman. I have a spouse that can provide help. I have children that can, can do what they can do. Um, to help, you know, maybe I can say no to this extra project. Maybe I can say no to this committee. Um, Maybe I can say no to this church function. 
So I think that we can control that, but we have to be we have to be cognitively ready to be able to 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 step into our no. And it takes a minute to get there. But as I said, as a recovering overachiever, I sit back and I look at all the the weeks I worked 60 hours a week and still came home and did this and did that and did this in the community and what actually I was burning myself out from both ends. Absolutely. And you're not alone. Many of us will do that. And it's amazing to me, though, that you speak about it with such clarity and such strength and you own it. You don't have any problems with that. Right. Well, you know, I, I own it now. I wasn't always owning it because, you know, for me, it's just what you do. You, 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 run, you get up at 430 in the morning, you're on the go. You know, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do because that's what, that's what my environmental upbringing told me that I was supposed to be the strong black woman, right? And that I could do all of these things. I could manage all of these things. And I managed them for a long time until I realized I was really burning myself out. But the interesting part is I didn't come to that level of recognition until I was in my 40s, <laughs> late 40s and, and, you know, early 50s. So it took a while. Well, it's so, it's so funny because I used to be on the same regimen that, that you kind of briefly touched on. I mean, I would be at the gym every morning a little before six. Today... I was at the gym a little before six because of some unusual obligations early in the morning. And as I left, I had a little conversation with myself. Really? <laughs> you really used to do this five days a week? What was wrong with you? Right, right. Yeah, because we're we're those super women. And sometimes, you know, to be honest, as I think about you know, what my schedule used to be, because I was even getting my doctorate while working 60 hours a week, and I finished my doctorate in 3.8 years. Um, and so when I look at it, keeping busy and having all these things on my plate really helped me to not think about the things that were lingering within my psyche. I can identify with that. I'm in the middle of writing my dissertation as we speak. So yeah. I can definitely identify with that. But part of it is, too, I think that my focus has been forced to shift from some mm -hmm. direction to others. And, mm -hmm. and that's been a good thing. That's mm -hmm. been a really good thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I used to check my financial statements. I can't tell you the last time I did that. Um, <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> so things happen for a reason. But mm -hmm. I think... What's so interesting to me is because you mentioned it earlier, you know, the connection between the, the physical and the mental. And there's a great book, The Body Keeps Score, because the body keeps score of everything that's going on in your brain. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one of the things that I see with clients here is it starts off what they'll recognize first is the physical. I don't know. I've never felt so fatigued. I don't know where this came from. I've been to the doctor. I've had my heart checked, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. There's nothing wrong with me. And what's driving it is the mental condition. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about when I have my sit and heal um, sessions is, you know, people say, oh, I am, I, I'm not sleeping or I'm sleeping too much. 
I'm not eating or I'm eating too much. Um, I'm shopping a lot. I'm on the internet all hours of the night. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking a lot, you know, and, but at the same time that they're saying that they don't recognize that that is because of an exacerbation of stress. And they're not putting those, those two things together. You know, they're not able to identify that, but that's exactly what is happening is our body is trying to tell us that something is going on and we're not connecting that with our mental, with our mental wellness. Um, and so those two things, they, they're, they're connected. They, you can't have one, you can't have mental wellness without physical wellness and, 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 and vice versa. Boy, that is music to my ears. That's really what prompted me to, to do this PhD is to create social change around mental health. Mental health is brain health. The brain is an organ just like the heart. And if we have, we think there's something wrong with our heart, we are on it. If we have a day where we can't get out of bed or we're overwhelmed, we just have a nasty conversation with ourselves yeah. and try to, you know, try to motivate uh, using negative reinforcement. Yeah. So I, I feel like the time is right for everybody recognizes the importance of the brain. People just get confused when they think about their brain because they feel like that, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, well, what's the difference between the brain and the mind? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. well, the mind works through the brain, you know, mm-hmm. but it's amazing if we can it, help people make that connection between their physical and their mental connection conditions, mm-hmm. it will increase their healing. How much quicker do you think they'll heal? You know, I think that the path would be much quicker if they recognize that, you know, if, if your, if your brain and your mind are, 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 are tired and not functioning well, then you're not, you're not going to be able to get out of, just get out of bed like you normally would. You're going to be wondering why your heart, you're having heart palpitations. Well, that's anxiety. You know, you're going to be wondering why you have this, this overwhelming sense of, of fear and dread. You know, you could be having a panic attack. You know, those headaches that you're having, you know, that could be a sign of that, that you're, you're depressed. And, you know, so it's really about making those connections. And I really am, applaud you for, for working on your dissertation and doing this podcast at the same time. I know how difficult that that is. But the work that you're doing is so important because we need to do more around mental health and helping people to understand that, as you said earlier, hey, I know if I if I say that my stomach has been hurting me, I'm going to go to my doctor. But how many people do we hear saying, well, I know that my mind is hurting. I'm going to go see my doctor today. It needs to be just as common. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, we'll talk, we think that we own it when we say, well, you know, Child Abuse Prevention Month was in April and Mental Health Awareness Month was in May. And yes, it is important to acknowledge those, but it's, it requires more than that. I mean, this is amazes me. The average person that suffers from a mental health condition will suffer for a decade, 10 years before they will get help. Mm. That's a long, long time to be in pain and to be hurting. That's a long time to be in pain. No one's going to go 10 years with a toothache. Oh, no. 
and you know it, it sustained that that physical pain and I you know talk very openly about you know dealing with anxiety um, you know every single day and because I know how to deal with it you know it's not crippling I enjoy the you know I enjoy my life I just came back from a 17-day trip to South Africa so I am absolutely enjoying you know every aspect of my life but I understand you know what it feels like to be anxious but I also know what I can do to counteract that and, you know, interestingly enough, I think we've been acknowledging May as Mental Health Awareness Month since sometime in the 1940s, but we need to be looking beyond May. You know, we need to look at this as a public health issue that we deal with every single day and making sure that people have access to care, um, that there's equitable access to care for people um, to receive treatment around their own mental well-being. Well, you know, and why we don't, I don't get, because the World Health Organization says by the year 2030, brain-related diseases will be the biggest disability in the world globally. Mm -hmm. It will have the biggest financial impact on us. And wow. that's only seven years from now, Marie. It's, wow. you know, we know I mean, before, before we went through the pandemic, one out of four Americans suffered from either anxiety, depression, or substance abuse problem. And I, I've seen different sets of numbers after the pandemic, none mm -hmm. that have really been, you know, validated. But you, you've got to know they're a lot higher now than they were then. And are we equipped to deal with, when I say we, I mean society, are we right. equipped to deal with that? You know, I don't think that we are. And as you said, that those, you know, COVID-related impact of, 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 you know, mental wellness, I don't think that we've even seen, um, we, have, we haven't even seen the impacts of it yet. Because people I, are still trying to understand, you know, what it is that they're feeling and why, they, why they're feeling that way in the first place. Well, if people still have in their head the, the thought that, well, you know, it's not okay to not be okay. And guess right. what? It is okay to not be okay, but you got to do something about it. You can, right. you know, we've got about two minutes left before we take a break. And any, any takeaways from our first half of the show that you'd like our, our listeners to leave with? I think the most important takeaway is the one that you just mentioned is, you know, it is okay not to be okay. Looking at the statistics and the numbers of individuals that are going to be impacted um, by having challenges with their mental health is so important for people to understand that they are not alone and that there are services and resources and supports that are out there to help people get the, the treatment that they need, the treatment that's best for them um, that they need, and that we need to do more as a society to talk about mental wellness in the same way that we talk about our physical wellness. I, you, I could not agree with you more wholeheartedly. And I think the good news is, is that the research is coming out that's showing the link between anxiety and heart disease and even linking things like diabetes. And it, it yeah. finally, we're getting our, we're getting a, a clearer picture of what's going on. So, so we're going to take a break, but stay with us. We've got a lot more to talk about. We'll be back after these messages. 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Salt is in nearly everything we eat, and many times it makes food taste so delicious. Even though the 2010 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends limiting sodium to less than 2,300 milligrams a day, Men's Health Magazine states that the average American takes in about 3,300 milligrams of sodium every single day. Your body needs some sodium to function properly because it helps transmit nerve impulses. It influences the contraction and relaxation of muscles, and it helps maintain the right balance of fluids in your body. But most of us are getting far more sodium than is recommended. Check out the sodium content in the foods you are eating and limit soy sauce, Parmesan cheese, bacon, smoked salmon, ramen noodles, and salami. It's time to kick the habit of too much sodium. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. well known in medical practices that patients tend to lie about their health habits. They lie about how much they smoke, understate how much they drink or eat, and overstate how much they exercise. What's another word for those little white lies we like to tell in the examination room? Teradiddles. Doctors have a rule of thumb. Whatever the patient says they're drinking, smoking, or eating, multiply it by two. But it's hard to come clean about your habits when you know you're in for some jobation from the doctor. That's criticism we don't want to hear. If physicians want us to be honest with them, I suggest they try being a little less judgmental and use a little suaviloquence. That's soothing, encouraging talk. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So before we took a break, we spoke very openly about Marie's early childhood trauma and she's been very willing to just, you know, to share information. So you definitely endured some sexual abuse. How prevalent is this issue? So it's more common than I think, you know, the average person understands. According to the Center for Disease Control, one in four girls and one in 13 boys has experienced sexual abuse before they turn 18 years old. And what's most alarming about that is 91% of the perpetrators are family members or known family friends. And that's how common it is. And, you know, we teach our children about stranger danger, right? Oh, yeah. But according to these statistics, you know, what we need to be teaching them early on it's about inappropriate touching um, and um, inappropriate interactions with family members and friends. And, and as we are seeing a lot in the media these days with teachers and Boy Scout troop members and, and church members and, 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 and all of that. And so, you know, it's a conversation that unfortunately we have to have with our children early on because a lot of times the perpetrators, um, they scare the children into believing that something bad is going to happen to them or their family members that they tell. And that's why you have a lot of, um, of children that do not disclose until adulthood because of that fear. 
Well, you know, it took you a while to deal with your personal trauma, didn't it? It absolutely took me a while to deal with it openly, but I will say that I accidentally revealed that I was being abused by my um, by my older brother. I accidentally revealed this um, when I was around um, eight or nine years old. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Was it a conscious Was it a conscious decision, or did it just kind of slip out? Well, it kind of slipped out. I was playing with some friends, and we were playing this game called boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, we were we were in, in love with the Jackson Five, you know, Michael Jackson and brothers. <laughs> and we were claiming which one was going to be, you know, our boyfriend. So, you know, my assigned boyfriend who was acting as though he was Jackie Johnson, you know, he tried to um, Jackson, I'm sorry, Jackie Jackson. He tried to kiss me, and I was like, "You, you know, don't do that." You know, my brother does that, and then he takes my clothes off. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I'm continuing to play and I'm oblivious to the fact that, you know, my my friends that I'm playing with are like, what what did she just say? And one of them went in and told um, her mom and her mom revealed it um, to my dad. But I hadn't said anything um, about it to to my my dad um, at that time. My parents had gone through a separation I was living with my father, and in the 70s, it was an anomaly for a man to be a single parent, and my dad was a single parent to seven children um, at that time. And so while they were in the midst of, you know, their issues, this was happening um, to me, and I just did not feel like I had anybody that I could turn to and and tell, and, you know, my, my, my older brother told me that if I if I told that I was going to get in trouble and that, and I believed him. Well, of course you did. That's, that's the family dynamics. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That, that is an incredible story. And the fact that your dad was there for you and handled it. How did that make you feel? So this is the interesting thing. My dad came um, and picked me up that day. I'll never, I'll never forget it. I was sitting on the steps while he went inside to say hello um, to um, to my friend's mom, and he came outside and sat on the steps with me. Now my dad was, my dad had a complexion that's the same as Hershey's chocolate, right? I remember my dad being a handsome, we call him chocolate, chocolate man. But that day I. I, when I saw him, I felt like all the color had drained out of his face. Wow. And then he asked me um, if my brother had been touching me, and I said yes. And so we never talked about it again after that. But um, we went home the next day. Um, my older brother left the house, and um, he returned three years later. Wow. And so I was feeling, you know, really okay because he was out of the house but then when he returned I kind of felt a little bit betrayed um and then of course you know he tries to do the inappropriate things again but I'm older and I told him that you know to basically just leave me alone because if you don't I'm going to tell but just him being back in the house just um created a whole lot of tension and anxiety for me because I, I no longer felt safe now, keep in mind that my dad was born in 1925 wow. and had was dealing with his own, you know, issues of uh, abandonment as a child. And 
you know, he was a, a very hardworking guy. He went to the Marine Corps and retired from the Marine Corps. So he was a he was a really good, solid um, person. My parents separated because of domestic violence, and my mom ended up moving, um, leaving the home and leaving us in North Carolina and moving to California. So all of these things in totality, you know, witnessing an episode of domestic violence between my parents, being sexually abused, my mom, you know, leaving, I'm, I'm being raised by my dad, and I'm a little girl and I need my mom. So all of these things just, um, I, my, my, I just started acting out. And I remember um, my first job being a candy striper at the hospital, which I really, really loved. My mom was, a, my mom was eventually, eventually became a nurse. So in my family, you know, everyone is either nurses or we're caregivers. I have two daughters that are nurses, nieces that were nurses. So we came from a family background of human services. So I volunteered as a candy striper and to, to basically to get out of the house, you know, to get away from, you know, being with my brother there on the weekends. But I ended up um, getting involved with someone that I met and getting pregnant at age 15. And um, I didn't tell anybody that I was pregnant because I didn't even know how to have that conversation um, with anyone to tell them, you know, that I was pregnant. And when it was discovered that I was pregnant, I was, um, the decision was made that I was going to have an abortion. And because I was so far along, I could not have a, a traditional abortion. I had an abortion in which... I actually had to go through the process of labor and giving birth. Oh, my gosh. And so you want to talk about trauma. I mean, the blood increased 12-fold, you know, and it was not something that I I dealt with, you know, as, as a child. It was something that we just, it happened, and we didn't talk about it, and I went back to school the next week. And we just continued on because I don't think we knew how to talk about it. I don't think that we were equipped to talk about it. You know, in 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 our in our culture, in the black culture, um, we say what happens in our household stays in our household, and that's exactly what it was. It stayed in our household. And so I just dealt with this internalized trauma, and. Um, because I did not have any of the therapeutic or non-therapeutic, for that matter, interventions in order to help me manage um, that trauma. And so I just kind of crawled my way in through, you know, adulthood. And um, at some point, I made the decision after being married and divorced by the age of 22 that I really just needed to get it together. I made that decision that I needed to get it together. And once my daughter was born, my focus changed and my path changed. And I said, you know, this is it. I've got to make some decisions about um, how I'm going to, you know, make things um, different for, for my daughter. I've got to, um, I've, I've got to make a, a plan and a path in order to be able to move forward. I've got to put all of this trauma and things that I've dealt with. I've got to put them in a little neat little box and I've got to pack them away and I've got to take care of my business. And that that's what I went on to do for the next, you know, 20-something years until I came to this place in my 40s. I was like, wait a minute. All of this underlying stuff that's coming out right now, it happened to come out when I was working on my dissertation, right, and trying to work as an executive with 1,400 staff um, in San Diego. And I knew that a lot of the, the anxiety and stress that I was feeling was because of unresolved trauma. 
That leaves me breathless. The amount of, and you mentioned, I, I know women of color, it's it it's not accepted at the same level to, to go see a counselor or, you know, to get mental health services. And I certainly think the work that you're doing is changing that. Yeah, there's such a stigma in the black community in general with men and women around, you know, seeing therapists. Um, you know, we, we are very strong in our faith in the black community. And, you know, we, are, we rely a lot on our faith because, you know, that's all we had. You know, when you go all the way back to the, the times of, you know, when we were, you know, when the black black people were enslaved, um, that's, that's what they had. That's what we had to rely on was our faith. And so, um, you know, you hear things like, you know, black people don't suffer from mental illness. If you seek help, you have a, a spiritual weakness. Um, our in- ancestors have, have been through so much worse. If I go to therapy, that means I don't have enough faith. And so it's these types of statements that really reinforce the idea that therapy is shameful. And so when I go out and speak, um, and mostly my audience is is really um, women of color, you know, I talk to them about the importance of dispelling those myths. And I believe in God. I know that I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my faith in God. But I also believe that he is not pleased when he gives us tools to use and we don't use them. And when I say tools, I mean, God created health professionals, nurses, doctors, therapists, psychiatrists. And what I say, um, you know, very, very often and very forcefully is that seeking services from a qualified therapist is okay. Um, It is not taboo, nor is it shameful. And our, our long held beliefs about getting the help that we need are really damaging to the black community. But the other issue that we have in our community is um, obviously people want to be seen by someone who understands the cultural norms and the societal issues that are, that are facing people of color. And so you don't necessarily have to have a therapist of color, but it helps if you have a therapist that understands culturally appropriate therapeutic services. Because without that, it's going to be really difficult to get to the heart of not only the the psychological things that are ailing the black community, but the environmental and societal things that also impact, you know, how we think and how we feel um, around the, around the experiences we have. Well, you, know, you make a really good point. And is there advice that you can share with our listeners? What, and, and you're right. You don't have to, your therapist doesn't have to be the same color that you are, but they've got to be in the same heart space and head space. Is, right. there any, is there any question or any words of advice you can share that people could could use when they find themselves in that situation, okay, I'm ready to get help, but how am I going to find somebody that gets me? So there are a lot of resources that are available for people of color. There's therapy for black men, there's cerebral, um, there's a, you can get referrals through NAMI, there's Black Therapist Rock, there are referral sources. And now, you know, we can have therapy um, through Zoom. 
And so there may not be someone in your community, and if it's important to you to have a therapist of color, then those are the resources that you can connect with to find a therapist of color that you can um, that you can get services from. But also, I would say, do not limit your ability to get the help that you need because your therapist may not look like you. Most therapists are trained in, in regardless of the population, most therapists are trained to deal with any anxiety or depression. I do think it's important for a therapist to have culturally appropriate training and education and, and background. But I, I, would, I would really just implore people to not use this as a barrier that they don't have someone that looks like them to be able to get the services that they need. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for, for American, African Americans between the ages of 15 and 24. And so if we really want to try to change this statistic and to help our community be more healthy from a mental wellness standpoint, then we are going to have to take some accountability and make sure that we are doing our own work and our own research to get the help that we need. Well, thank you. That that's really valuable information because you're and you're so right. When you need help, you've got to get the help. And you if you're open to receive, I'm a big believer in energy and you put that energy out there. You'll, it'll find its way to the right person. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So talk to me a little bit about healing. I saw a, a phrase on some, maybe it was your website or something that it talks about healing out loud. Yes. Yes. So when I did my TED Talk last year, it was titled Healing Out Loud. And healing out loud basically means that you're having open, authentic conversations around what your mental wellness is with the people that are in your circle, your family, your friends, your pastor, those that are connected to you, because you don't have to suffer in silence. You know, if, if, if we are in a circle of people that we don't believe that we can be open with, then maybe we need to change that circle of people. So healing out loud means that you can acknowledge what happened to you, what your trauma was, what, what it is that you're going through. And maybe it wasn't because of trauma. Maybe it was because of genetics. Talk about what you're going through. You know, accept the fact that whatever has happened to you was not your fault. Learn how to release the feelings of the pain, the shame, the anger, Practice grace, learn how to forgive yourself so that you can get to a place of post-traumatic growth. So being able to heal out loud takes away some of that stigma and the shame of having a mental health issue. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to, to write this book and to do this TED Talk is because I wanted people to know that you can live in the suburbs, travel abroad, wear designer clothes, drive luxury cars. And you can still have anxiety and depression. Amen. So it doesn't look like any particular person. It doesn't live in any particular place. It doesn't have a certain amount of money. It doesn't have a certain title or position. It doesn't discriminate. 
but you can still have that acceptance and get the help that you need to be okay. I think that's very well said. I think that that words, the words you use very well express the necessity, but at the same time, the the willingness and the openness that surrounds healing. Yes, you have to be able to accept, you have to be open. You have to accept what that whatever happened to you. You have to acknowledge whatever happened to you and you have to be ready. And so as those that have, have experienced trauma, you also have to take accountability for your own healing. You have to say, I'm ready to do this. I'm tired of feeling the way that I'm feeling. I'm tired of living the way that I'm feeling. I know that I can thrive. I know that I can live my best life, but this is what I need to do first. So, you know, to some people, it sounds a little harsh saying that if you were victimized, you have to take accountability for your healing. But you do have to take accountability for for your healing because otherwise you're going to stay in this place where you're not going to move forward, you're going to stay in this one place of hurt and pain and blame and shame. And if you don't allow yourself to move past that and to experience the joy and the happiness of that post-traumatic growth, then you're not doing you're not you're not doing yourself the service that you need to to do for yourself in order to be better um, and to and to have the best life that you possibly can. I love the term post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. I I think that it, I'm going to borrow that mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think that that's what it's all about. It's just like it, when we look at what we went through the with the pandemic, we can only see the threats or, or the, and the challenges, or we can see opportunities. Right. And there's both with every anytime you're in a, a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment, there's just as much room for opportunity as there is for threat. Right, right. And and post-traumatic growth is, is it really happens when you are when you are when you are ready. Um, when you can cultivate stronger relationships with those that, that you love and where you can really get the help that you need, um, especially after trauma. I think it's 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 really important to be able to, to do that. It's not saying that you're going to forget about what happened to you, but you are going to take that and you are going to turn it into um, your ability to continue to to increase the quality of life, the your quality of life. So I have a question for you. You, when you were very young, it you just unknowingly shared some very some information that made you very vulnerable. Then as you aged, you decided, you know, it was time to deal with your personal trauma. Are you done with it or does it still come to visit sometimes? Oh, it still comes to visit sometimes. There are certain, certain triggers, certain thoughts. You know, this is it, it, one thing that's really interesting. Um, so I, I inherited the house that I grew up in and um Recently, in the past couple of years, I had the house um, remodeled inside out. A family, my a family still lives there, and the 
the floor, the bathroom floor, where most of the molestation, molestation happened was the same floor. And when um, I was choosing the colors for the floor, which means that they had to take the old floor up, I because when in visiting that house, there were two bathrooms in the house. I never went in that bathroom in the hallway. But then I had to go in the bathroom in the hallway so that I could look at the, you know, look at um, the way that we were changing it around and decide what color the walls were going to be and what color the floor was going to be. And the only thing I could think about in my mind when I was standing in there is right beneath my feet is where I used to lay on the floor and be molested. Wow. That's so. But that's so that's so transparent for you to share. And so for, you know, anybody that's been through a healing journey all of their own, if they're feeling touched by it, know you're not alone. Know that that it it lives on sometimes and. And as much as you want to outgrow it, it's it's still there. And, you know, we've got about three minutes left in the show. And I, I know in your book, you devoted the chapter to sharing positive affirmations. Did you use affirmations as part of your healing journey or, or why was that important to you? Oh, absolutely. You know, we talk about the, the mind is the strongest muscle in our body, right? And so... I believe that we become who we say we are. And so even on the days when I didn't feel like I was enough, I would say things like, I am strong, I'm smart, I am confident, I'm amazing. You know, and, and I feel like if you if you talk positively to yourself, because you're the only person that hears the voices in your head. And sure. thank God for that. I always thank God that people can't hear what I'm saying in my mind. Um, but... <laughs> But since you're the only person that hears the voices that are in your head, you have to make those voices work for you. And so what you are telling yourself every single day is going to be what is going to take you further than anything else you do. Because if you say you can't do it, you can't do it. If you say you can't do it, you're going to give it your best effort, even if you miss the mark. And so... I have a chapter of, of positive affirmations because I believe that we have to we have to affirm ourselves in a way that we know that we are enough. Well, I think that it, I'm a big believer in, in affirmations as well. Back in 2019, a tornado took down my office, and I'll never forget the standing there, had on suede boots. Everything was so wet. I'll never forget the squishy sounds I heard. And all I could think was, I will come back bigger and better and stronger. And you know what? I did. So I I so agree with you. We've just got a minute left. And please share with people how they can find out more about you, where they can get your book. How do they access you? So I have a a website. It's MercadelConsultingSolutions.net. My book can be found at most retailers, including Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, and it's also available at my website. I'm on Facebook, I'm Dr. Marie Brown Mercadale, on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Marie Speaks. Marie, thank you so much. I, you've been the most so honest and so open, and, and it was a healing experience for me just to have you on the show. 
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. 